Well, wasn't that a great initiation for the church into the Christmas season? And isn't the auditorium beautiful? Uh, the poinsettias and uh, just a, a great time for us to worship. We'll continue to worship the Lord uh, through hearing and responding to his word. Uh, we will look at Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. As you can see, the Lord's table is prepared before us. The practice of our church is open communion. <clears throat> that means that uh, obviously this is for church members of this church, but it is also you're uh, extended a welcome to us. If you are a child of God, you have confessed Christ as your Savior, you have repented of your sins, and your membership is in another church somewhere, and you are in good standing with that church, uh, we invite you at that time uh, to come and join us at the Lord's table. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5. Paul writing there says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, <clears throat> taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on the cross. <clears throat> I'm sure <clears throat> you've heard somebody say along in the past, a preacher or something somewhere say, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect church. And if you did happen to find one, don't join it, because if you did, it would not be perfect any longer. Okay? Uh, well, that is true, and uh, no church is perfect. Uh, some churches are uh, more on track and are thriving and flourishing better than others, and uh, that was true even in the days of the New Testament. Paul wrote letters to different churches, but it is pretty clear that his favorite church was the church at Philippi to whom he wrote this uh, epistle. You know, they, they didn't have major problems. And I said, no church is perfect. They didn't have major problems. You know, Paul had to write to Colossae because they were confused about who Jesus actually is. That's a problem, okay? Uh, he had to write to the church of Galatia because they seemed to be falling away from the teaching that Jesus and their salvation was solely by grace, a sort of a works approach to salvation. And Paul had to write and straighten that out. Well, now, when he's writing to the church at Philippi, it's mainly a thank you note. He's expressing thanks because they have again found him and sent money and even Epaphroditus along to help him in his time of need. So it is a thank you note. But remember, no church is perfect. And so Paul thought, while I am writing to them, I do know of one little minor issue that they need to address. And that is, some of them in that congregation need an attitude adjustment. You ever heard of that? You need an attitude adjustment. <clears throat> well, they needed an attitude adjustment, 
And so Paul is going to address that situation. Now we actually see this, if we'll back up to verses 3 and 4, this is where he touches on their problem. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Now why do you think he told them not to do anything out of selfishness? I imagine it's because some of them were doing something out of selfishness, okay? Uh, and and self-conceit. And and then he goes on to say, but with humility, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Evidently, some people weren't doing that. And and then he goes on, as we have in verse 4, don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but on the interests of others. Now, you know why he was telling them to look out on the interest of others? Because there were probably some of them that were only looking out for their interests of themselves. Now, why didn't he tell them to look out for their interests of their own selves also? Because they were already doing a pretty good job of that already. That tends to come natural to us. And so, he says, we've got a problem there. And as any good preacher would do, he stops at this point and says, you know, an illustration is in order here. I need to, illustrations are there to sort of shed light, to be the window of the sermon or of what you're teaching. And so I imagine Paul didn't have to stop long when he thought they just need a great example of humility for me to show them what they're needing to do. And then it dawned on him rather quickly. There's no greater example of what I'm wanting them to put into practice than to have the same attitude that Jesus had when he left the splendor of heaven and actually became one of us. And so that's why, as soon as he says, you need an example, the first thing he does is says, what you need to be doing is imitating Jesus. Now folks, we can't imitate what Jesus did. We can't be be God and become man and take on the sins of the world and die. We can't do that. Uh, The uniqueness of Jesus' person explains the exclusivity of his work. Only Jesus could do what Jesus did. We can't do that. Paul didn't say to imitate what Jesus did. He says to imitate the attitude that Jesus had in doing what he did. He said, some of you there at Philippi need an attitude adjustment And you need to have the same attitude that Jesus had when he did what he did. Now, if we're going to follow Paul here, then we're going to have to understand, first of all, who is this person that we're supposed to be imitating in our attitudes? The second thing is we're going to explore the specific action that he performed. What did he actually do? Then we're going to focus on the attitude in which he actually did what he did. And then we're going to seek to apply that to ourselves today that we have that same attitude that Christ had. This passage, those verses that we read, in my opinion, are the clearest explanation in the scripture of who Jesus is. Folks, we are entering the Advent season. 
where we are celebrating the birth of Jesus. So we would do well to have it very clear in our minds who it is whose birthday we are celebrating. Well, most people say, well, it's Jesus. Yes, but who is that? I think the church is much more clear about the work of Jesus, what he did for us, than we are clear about who he actually is. And this passage, to me, is the clearest explanation of who Jesus is. Now, many Bible scholars would challenge that, even though many would agree with me. Many of them would say John chapter 1 is the clearest explanation for that. But I would beg to differ that when we understand what Paul is saying here, there is no way that he could have made it any clearer that in Jesus of Nazareth, the fullness of God was dwelling. That Jesus was 100% God. And he was 100% man United in what the theologians call the hypostatic union, the union of two natures, God and man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That is a clear statement as to who Jesus is, and we want to see how Paul spells that out and delineates that here. Who is this person that we're talking about? Well, if you look in verse 6, He says, although he existed in the form of God, some translations say being in the form of God, he actually existed in the form of God. When is he talking about? Well, he's talking about before he took on a servant, because he's going to, in the next verse, become a bondservant. So who was he before he did that? The scripture says that he was existing in the very form of God. God, when? All the way, folks, this goes back before Bethlehem. This goes back before the cradle, the manger. This goes back before Moses. Okay? This goes back before the Garden of Eden. This goes all the way into eternity past when John was talking in John 1 when he said the Word in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning of what? In the beginning of everything. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was existing, he says, even before becoming a servant and taking on human flesh. In his deity, he has always existed. He being in the very form of God. And folks, if he was in the form of God and took on humanity voluntarily, that certainly tells us he had an existence beforehand. And you know what that means? That means when Mary held that little baby, she could not truthfully look in his face and say, your life began 15 minutes ago. She couldn't say, your life began nine months ago. Because she was holding in her hand the one who was from the beginning, the very being of God. She was holding in her hand the ancient of days. Paul is very clear when he says he was in the form of God. It's very interesting, that word form. That word form, the Greek word, and I'll tell you what it is because I'm going to come back to that in a minute, is morphe. That word means, and you may even have a translation that says essence. He was the very essence of God. 
Everything that makes God to be who he is, is who Jesus is as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. He is the very essence of God. Okay? Folks, you, you know, God, there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You can take what we call water or ice or steam when you're cooking, and those are all of the same essence. They are all two, what, H, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. You can freeze it, and it is still the same chemical compound. It's H2O. The essence of it is the same. You can boil it and it becomes steam. It is still of the same essence, okay? You can have Jesus, the very essence of God. Now, I'm not saying it. Let me tell you how this is not an analogy of the Trinity, okay? They are all of the same essence, but you know what? Have you ever seen water and steam and ice in the same H2O at the same time? I'll give you the answer to that. No, you haven't. Okay? It can't happen. It's in one outward form or the other, but the essence of it is still the same. Jesus is just like water and that steam and that ice is of the very same essence. The chemical composition is exactly the same. Jesus was exactly the very nature of God. Paul says that with this whole notion of Form. You can take the example of a human being. A human being's a human being. When, that, when there's a little baby born, it looks one way. Okay? When he gets to be or she gets to be 20, they look another way. When they get to be 70, they look a different way. But you know what? They're still the same human being. Okay? The very essence is still the same. That little baby doesn't grow up to be a rose or a giraffe, or a porcupine, it remains exactly what it was. That's exactly the word Paul is using here. It's the very form or essence of something that absolutely cannot change. He is saying that even before he was born, Jesus was in the very form of God, the very essence of what makes God what it is. And so would we be surprised that he says, and he was equal with God. Well, folks, if he was God, I would expect he would have been equal with God. It would be hard for him not to be. That equal is another interesting word. It's the word iso. I told you I was going to tell you about morphos a while ago. I'm going to come back to that. Isa, that, that Greek word uh, means the same. It means equal. There it is. As we translate, it's equal. So what does isomorphic mean? That's an English word. Isomorphic means... There are two things of the same form. They're of equal form. If two things are isometric, they are of the same size. Now let's go all the way back to your geometry. Ooh. What's an isosceles triangle? It has two sides that are equal. That's what the word means, and that's what Paul says here. Jesus was of the very form of God, even from the beginning, and he is equal with God, as we would expect. And so, are we surprised that he says when he's writing to the Colossians, which is a church which was a little bit confused about who Jesus was, 
Twice in that short book, he says to the church of, of, of Colossae that the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. The very full. Now that word's an interesting word. Pleroma. It's the same word back there in the Gospels. You remember when Jesus fed the multitudes and then he, they all picked up the food? How much was left? Twelve baskets full. Same word. They were running over. You couldn't put any more food in them. They were full. It's the same word. Okay? That in Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt. He is Christ God incarnate. Now, let's do some more words. We'll go from Greek to Latin this time. Is that all right? Can you take all that? All right. Incarnation. We are celebrating the incarnation. What does that mean? That's a combination of two Latin words. In means in. Okay. okay. Carnus means flesh. You know what a carnivore is? It's a being that eats flesh. Okay. Carnivorous. The incarnation literally means the enfleshment. That's what we're celebrating at this time of year, folks, is the one who always was God took on human flesh, and that is the incarnation. Now, notice then exactly what he did. We've touched on this. Look at the first part of verse 7. It says he emptied himself. Now, folks, what did he empty himself of? God can't quit being God. He didn't empty himself of being God. When he walked among us, he was still God. Okay? That's how he could forgive sins. You remember the, the Pharisees even said one time when he forgave somebody's sins, he said, wait a minute, he can't do that unless he's God. And Jesus is saying, mm-hmm. Yep, that's exactly right. Uh, <clears throat> he he was, was God as, and took on human flesh. What did he empty himself of? Folks, he tells us in the passage. Okay? He emptied himself of his rights and privileges that go with being God. He was equal with the Father because both of them were God. But notice, he didn't see that equality as something to hold on to and grasp at all costs. Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, gave up his rights. Now, how do we know? Folks, that's exactly what Paul was telling them in using the illustration. You're too concerned about your rights. You're too concerned about yourselves. Okay? You need to be more humble and care less about your rights the way Jesus cared less about his. He had a right to stay right there in heaven with God. He could hold to that right if he wanted to, but you know what he decided? That it was more beneficial for him to let go with his rights and become a human being like one of us, and to be the, our Savior, that it was more important to do that than it was to maintain his rights. He emptied himself of his rights, of his right to be equal with God. He gave up his glory that he had with the Father. He gave up his riches. Folks, remember the scripture says all things were created by him and for him. Well, that's another statement of his deity. By him, and yet, when he walked among us, he didn't own anything that he had created. <laughs> Probably outside the clothes on his back. Okay. But, but he, he thought that was a great idea. 
He thought it was better to turn loose of his rights and become our Savior than it was to hold on to his rights and all of us remain in our lost condition. Aren't you glad he decided that? It says that he took on the form of a servant. Same word, morphe. Folks, when, when Jesus became a human being, he became a human being in that very form. The very thing that makes human beings what they are is what Jesus took on. That means he was both God and man. Everything that makes a human being be what a human being is, Jesus was. A lot of us have an idea that Jesus was just sort of God walking around acting like a person. Uh, no, Jesus was a person. He was a human being. He took on human flesh as we are going to see. Chalcedon, Chalcedonian statement in what, 451, gets it right. He is perfect in Godhood. He is perfect in manhood. He is fully God and he is fully man. And he is God in the flesh walking among us. And then he says, in the likeness of a man. Okay? In, in the likeness. Uh, why, why does it say likeness? If he, was, if he was a man, why does it say he was like a man? Because he was like us, a man, in that he took on the form of a servant. He was a complete man, but he was more than a man. He was man joined in nature with God. There were two natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. So therefore, he was like us. How? He took on the very form of a servant. Now, it also says, notice he was found in the fashion of a man. Some translations say, some say in the appearance of a man. It says he appeared as a man. Now, by now we ought to know why he appeared as a man. Why did he look like a man? Because he was one, okay? That's why he looked like one. Now, some of your translations will say again there, it'll say in the form of a, of a, uh, of a man there, in the form of a man. That's actually a different Greek word. That word is schema. That word means... As, and that's why some translations will say the appearance, he looked like a man. He looked like a man because he was the very morphe of manhood. Okay? He really was a man. But he was man and God in one person of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? So, folks, that's, that's why, I mean, he was born. Folks, now look, he was born the same way we are. We talk about the virgin birth, folks. We're really, what we really need to be stressing is not the virgin birth. He was born the same way we are. He was conceived differently than we are, okay? It's the virginal conception that is so important, okay? Uh, and, but, but he was born like us. Had a body like us. He learned to speak his language of his culture just like us. He wore the clothing of the culture of his day. He was educated as, as people were in his day. He had a job. He actually worked. Okay? Uh, he uh, went to school. He, he learned. And the Bible says that he grew in wisdom and stature. He, he didn't look at the same when he was 20 as he did when he was 2. Because he was a human being. And I know what the song says. But he did cry. And let me let you in on a little secret here. He dirtied his diaper too. Okay. And I'll tell you how I know. We had three of those little boogers ourselves. And they dirtied their diapers. You know why? Because he was a human being. 
And he grew in wisdom and stature and in, in favor with God and man. And as a human being, he became obedient, the scripture says, obedient unto death. That tells you to the extent to which he submitted himself to the Father. He didn't draw a line in the sand and say, I will be submissive and obedient to you to this point, but I will not go any further. Folks, the cross says to us, he was obedient even to the death of the cross, and I do not have time to tell you and go into detail about the shame and the pain of a cross. He didn't draw a line in the sand and say, I will not go any further. He was obedient to the very end, and he did it as a human being. And how did he do this? What was the attitude? This is the point Paul was making. Look in verse 8. Okay. He humbled himself in doing this. He humbled himself. He gave up his rights. Paul, again, was telling the church there, you're too concerned about your rights. You're too concerned about yourselves. Have an attitude adjustment. Have the same attitude that Jesus had. That, that, that passage is a little bit difficult to translate, at least through the years, uh, but, but it, it, pretty recent scholarship indicates that that word that means to hold on to, to grasp, he, he, he didn't see his equality with God as something to hold on to at all cost. That's, that's what it means. Okay? Uh, he went from the throne to the cross. And he's going to go from the cross to the throne again one day. The Bible says he's the lamb. The lamb was slain. But that lamb is sitting on the, on the throne now. Okay? Yeah. So he humbled himself. Now, folks, I do not in any way intend to make, uh, treat something as insignificant what Jesus did, but I do want to put it in its proper perspective. You know, most of us, when we think, well, Jesus showed these disciples his humility, and when nobody would wash one another's feet, Jesus did it in that great act of humility. Now, folks, with all due respect, that was nothing, nothing compared to what he had already done. Compare these two acts of humility. Being equal with God and having every right and privilege that he had and humbling himself to become a human being and die on a cross, I want you to compare that humility with washing somebody's feet. If those disciples would have understood fully who Jesus was, they wouldn't have been surprised that he washed their feet because he had already left heaven for them. He humbled himself. And so Paul says that's what we're to do. Folks, we're to do that in relation to God. If Jesus himself was equal with God, and he humbled himself in submission to God, folks, how much more should we, who are undeserving sinners, how much more should we humble ourselves before God and not be so interested in what we think are our rights? Jesus gave us the perfect example of humility. If he did what he did, it ought to be easy for us to do what we're called upon doing. Folks, it means being humble in relation to one another. I know that's difficult to do sometimes. I read, a, I read of uh, the, great, uh, in the, the great Chinese revival that took place in the, back in the 1930s. 
Uh, one of the leaders of that revival was a man named Watchman Nee. Mr. Nee tells the story in one of his books of how <clears throat> one of the Chinese Christians, pretty, pretty poor guy, but he had a rice field. And so every morning he got up and he pumped his water into his rice field. But an unbelieving neighbor every day would lift up the dikes and the water would pour out onto his own field and leave his high and dry. And, and he, he, his brother got with some other Christians and prayed about it and prayed what to do. He said, I've got to do something. They said, I'll tell you what. Why don't we just all get up earlier in the morning? We'll pump your field full. We'll open the dike and fill his and then we'll fill yours again. And that's what they did. Not hard to imagine that other individual becoming a Christian when he found out the story of what was going on. But you know that's an example of humility. Folks, I won't ask you what you would have done. And the reason I'm going to ask you is because I don't want to ask myself what I would have done. But let's make it real clear what we should have done. We should have humbled ourselves. It, 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 that's what makes a church be a true community is that people are humble. People are humble. I know of another case where a church was getting ready to go into a building program. They hired a company to come in and shared, first of all, with the deacons. This is the plans. This is about what it'll cost. They were all in agreement, except one. And he said, folks, this is too much money. We just cannot afford to go into debt. There's other ways to spend the money. Let's do something like go to two services. Let's, do, let's just don't spend that much money. And they voted him down, you know. Nine to one, okay? When it came before the church, that same deacon stood up and made the same plea. Said, folks, I encourage you, please vote this down. Let's don't do this. Let's don't go this far and do the other thing. And he lost how many ever votes there was to one plus one, which was his wife, okay? That was it. Well, Monday morning, the pastor gets a telephone call from the deacon. Folks, let me tell you something. Pastors don't want telephone calls from a deacon on a Monday morning after a deacon's meeting. Okay? Particularly when there wasn't a unanimous vote. And this man said, can I come talk to you? He said, I guess so. And so he came. And he said, Pastor, I opposed this in the deacon's meeting, and I opposed it in the church. I think it's the wrong thing. Would you do me one favor? He said, I'll try. What is it? He said, would you make me the chairman of the debt reduction committee and let me lead the church in paying this debt off as fast as we possibly can? Folks, that's humility. That's humility. That's what makes for community. That's probably what was lacking in Philippi, and that's why he says, have this same attitude, the attitude of humility. And folks, Paul was writing to Christians here, understand. He was telling them what they needed was to have the attitude that Jesus had. <clears throat> if Paul were speaking to unbelievers today, and there may be some here today, I would really hope that everybody here is a believer. But, but if that is the case, Paul would not have been telling you that's the first thing you need to hear is to have the attitude that Jesus had. <clears throat> what he would say is you don't need Jesus as your model. You need Jesus as your Savior. You need to repent of your sins. You need to receive this great gift that God gave to you. When Jesus humbled himself, became one of us, lived, died on that terrible cross, and was raised for our justification. 
You see, if, if a person is out in the middle of a lake drowning, and folks, that's the situation that a person without Christ is in. They are spiritually drowning whether they know it or not. If a person is out there drowning, they don't need somebody to swim out there and demonstrate to them various ways to swim back to the shore. That's not what they're needing. They're not needing an example. They're needing a Savior. You can give them an example later. They need a Savior. Folks, if a person is here without Christ today, you don't need the example of Christ. You need the blood of Christ to atone for your sins. And that can happen as you turn to Him in faith and in repentance. You say, well, you don't know how bad I am. Well, I don't, and I don't need to know either. God does. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, can cleanse from all sin. Said another way, there is a lot more grace in God than there is sin in you. And what we experience at the Lord's table is exactly what we all need first and foremost. And then after that, we need to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Edwards Road Baptist Church. We hope you are meaningfully involved in a local church, but if you aren't, we would love to have you join us on Sunday mornings as we worship God and hear from His Word together. You can find more information about our church by visiting our website at edwardsroad.org.